welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. With the nursing process, you know you have to identify the health status of the patient and you've also got to identify any actual or potential health needs that that particular patient has. The other thing that you have to do is once you've got the information, you've identified the health status, you know what the needs are, then what do you do? You establish a plan, right? So you know that the nursing process starts with, with assessment, correct? Assessment, and then what do you do? Then you make a plan. Then you do, write out your interventions, and you, 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 you actually implement your interventions, and then you come back to evaluate. Now, with NCLEX, when you're sitting to take your test, how many times have you taken a, a, read a question and it goes, what is the first thing you would do? And don't you just make yourself crazy when you, when you see that? What is the first thing you would do? Well, assessment, number one. Okay? So the first thing you have to keep in your head is, I have to assess first. So if you read the answers, and the answers have to do with, you know, assessment, implementation, then you pick the one that tells you you have to assess first. Then you have to remember that it is cyclical also. Once you've assessed, once you've planned, once you've done your interventions, you have to go back and evaluate, right? And sometimes what you've implemented is good. It worked. And sometimes it doesn't. And what would happen if it doesn't work? You have to Go back, go back to square one, and I gotta tell you that the more you use the nursing process, the stronger you're going to be. You're going to be like Arnie Schwarzenegger, okay? The stronger it, you will be. It builds on each other. You will develop nursing muscles <laughs> that you never thought you had. When was the last time you heard somebody say that? Never, okay? <laughs> All right, so again, just one more time, you excess. You make your nursing diagnosis, you make your plan, right? Then you, in, you implement your plan, you evaluate, and if necessary, you reassess or you reevaluate, correct? Assessment includes getting information. Now, where can you get the information from? Well, a lot of places, right? Some of the places, you're constructing a database, basically, is what you're doing. So, where do you get the information? How do you construct the database? Well, you got to, you, the client, the patient is number one, right? How about the patient's family? Sure, that's num you can get information from the patient's family as well. How about um, past medical history? Absolutely. How about an old record? Yes, an old, you know, uh, um, medical record, right? How about that? Sure, you can certainly do that. Other things, other areas that you have to think about also is that you can also get information from neighbors and friends. Absolutely. Particularly, you know, nurse, um, NCLEX likes to throw you a lot of uh, home health questions. Particularly if you go visit someone in their home, you're a home health nurse or something, and you've got neighbors. Well, the neighbor can tell you that Mr. Anderson has a tendency to wander around at night from 5 to 6, and he doesn't know where he's going. He's a sundowner. Then you can figure that out, can't you? Sure. Absolutely. I had a patient one time where I, I visited him around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he was absolutely lucid. He was fine. He could have a conversation. So when his wife calls me at 8 o'clock at night and says he's missing, okay, and she doesn't know where he is, and he was going crazy at 7 o'clock, I'm having trouble visualizing this because I just saw him at 4, and he was perfectly with it. But this guy's a sundowner. 
You all know what that means. Sun goes down and he goes loopy. Right? And you've, I'm sure many of you have taken care of people like that. Deshav tells you, oh, he was fine. And then, you know, you give report to Deshav the next day and you say, huh, I had, sure had trouble with him. They look at you like, uh, no, not the same guy. But yes, the same guy. It's just a different person. Okay, then we make that diagnosis, right? Now, making the diagnosis is, is, okay, I know you're all going nursing diagnosis, nursing care plan, and all your faces are now on the floor. You hate that, right? I, actually, it's not so bad. Remember the first time that you came, that you actually came up with a nursing diagnosis that worked, and your professor went, yes, that's it, and didn't cross it out? Remember when that happened? Wasn't that a eureka moment? Wasn't that an aha moment? I got it. I finally got it. Same thing, the same thing with your NCLEX test-taking skills. As I said, when you go to take your test, the first thing you do is, if they, the question is asked, what would you do first? Well, the first thing you do is assess. What is another first that you could do? ABCs, airway breathing circulation. There's some basics that you just need to remember. Okay, and when you get that, when you get the concept that first thing I have to do is gather the information, or the first thing that I have to do is make sure the guy's breathing, because if he's not breathing, there's no point doing anything else, right? You've got your eureka moment. You've got your aha moment. Okay, planning. Now, we all know that when you make a plan, when you make your diagnosis and you say, okay, let's, for, for example, you know the guy is short of breath, and so you, he's got COPD, right? And you know that one of the things that you have to do is get oxygen in him. Okay, is there only one way to go? No. There are multiple things that you have to do, right? And multiple ways that you can go in order to achieve that goal. In nursing, as in medicine, as in life itself, there is never only one set way to accomplish your goal. Would you agree with that? There's never just one way. There are multiple roads and paths that you can take in order to get to your goal. But sometimes what you do need to do is set short-term goals and long-term goals. And in NCLEX, they have a focus on that too. A short, an immediate goal, okay, or a goal that's down the road. And they do ask you those kinds of questions an immediate thing, an immediate goal versus a long-term goal, okay? Let's put it this way. Here's your COPD patient, you know, and he's got a pH of 7.22 because he's very acidotic, and he's got an oxygenation of maybe 40. Now, you know, well, that 40 is not good. It's kind of incompatible with life, right? Would you agree? Yeah. Okay, so we want to get it up, okay? We need to get it up immediately, so we'll put him on two liters of oxygen to get up. That's your immediate thing, right? The immediate thing is let's put him on oxygen. Let's get him um, so that his oxygenation status now, quickly, let's get it up. Now, your long-term goal would be the same thing, but your implementation would be different because now you have to talk about, okay, what, what's wrong with this guy? He's got COPD. Well, why does he have COPD? What's he doing? Is he taking his medication properly? Is it albuterol? Is he giving himself, dispensing the albuterol correctly? Do you see what I mean? There are different goals that you follow. There's paths that you take depending on the goals that you set. All right. When you decide on what to do, I'm going to tell you all to do the Nike, which is called just do it. 
Now, how many of you, and it's the same thing with your test taking, okay? All right, show of hands, how many of you have taken a test, picked an answer, went back and changed it, and got it wrong? Yeah, the entire room, you see what I'm, yeah. So just do the Nike, make your decision, pick it, stick with it, don't go back. Oh, with, <laughs> I got people going, oh yes, that's me. <laughs> Dropping their heads down to the table. We've all done it. But we all also know that the first choice is generally your best choice. Don't go back. Please don't go back. Okay. When you evaluate, did you achieve your goal? Do you need to go back to the drawing board? And you've got to always remember that you're a patient advocate. And that is an NCLEX question. I hate to tell you that, but that really is. That was a focus on NCLEX that the nurse is a, a, a patient advocate. All right, we're gonna go now to the nursing and the law. Now, nursing and the law is something that, unfortunately, has become a bigger deal today than it ever was. We need to know the laws. And that's so sad, but the reality of it is is that we have become a very litigious country. Okay, in other words, you look at someone wrong and they'll sue you. And you know what I'm talking about. We consume McDonald's for hot coffee, too cold coffee, too much fat, too little fat, or oh, what the heck. That's, that's the way our country has become. Well, let's talk a little, in order to understand the law, we have to know what it is. Okay, there are two basic aspects of the law. One is a crime, and the other is a tort. A crime is something that you commit against the public. It's a legal wrong that you commit against the public, okay? Driving while intoxicated and killing someone is a legal wrong. That's something that the little men in black hats will come get you. All right? The, the district attorney will, will prosecute you and hopefully put you in jail and take away your license and do all kinds of awful things, especially if you're driving while intoxicated. Can you tell I really don't have any tolerance for alcoholics? <laughs> Um, it's punishable by the government. Okay, for example, involuntary manslaughter or manslaughter. Okay. Um, an assault, an assault is a legal wrong. In other words, if I, uh, uh, it's, it's a crime. In other words, if I come up to you and decide I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life, okay, that is assault. That is a legal wrong. Okay. There are certain parts of assault that are torts. Okay, so what's a tort? What a tort is a civil wrong, and what that is is that I, it's a crime against an individual. So, if, what is your name? Jesse. Jesse? Jessica? Jesse. Jesse. Okay, so if I say to everybody in the room that Jesse is a bad person, a terrible person, and she's, she can sue me for slander, it's a civil wrong. It's something that I've done against her, okay? If, uh, with a tort, the law permits Jesse to now turn around and sue me on an individual basis because I have committed a slander against her. Now, if I take a full-page ad out in the New York Times and say Jesse is a bad person, now that becomes a libelous situation because that's writing. All right? Okay. With nursing and medicine, we generally deal with 
torts, with civil wrongs. And there are two kinds, it's intentional and unintentional. The intentional is an assault or a threat. Okay, Jesse, I am going to beat you. Okay, and I have a stick. If I just say that, Jesse, I'm going to beat you, that's not, it's probably just a joke. But if I have a baseball bat in my hand and I hold it and I wave it at her and I say it in a very menacing tone of voice, Jesse, I'm going to beat you, that's an assault. If I actually beat her, in other words, there's contact, that's battery. Okay, so those are the two intentional types of torts. The third one is invasion of privacy. And this is when you have the elevator talk. You know what I'm talking about? Lots of elevator talk, you're standing in the elevator and so, yeah, Mrs. Anderson in room 223, she's just, you know, she's just too difficult to manage. Now that's invasion of privacy, particularly if there are other people in the, in the elevator as well. The other one is the cafeteria talk as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a hospital I worked in with a lot of, nurse, uh, lot of uh, medical students, and, and the med students and the residents and the interns were famous for standing in line in the cafeteria discussing their cases. Yeah, absolutely, discussing their cases. And they were talking about, they were mentioning names and just getting, you know, down and dirty on the discussion of the cases with each other. But, and that's okay, but except for one thing. There were other members of the public there. Okay, you cannot mention the patient's name, the room number, it's gotten to the point where you cannot even announce code blue in room 322. You have to say code blue third floor. <laughs> you cannot say 322 because why? I mean the relatives of 322 might be in the hospital hearing this and not knowing what's going on and that's, so, that's an invasion of privacy. There are certain examples of torts also, um, which is an evasion of privacy, okay? Another example is, for example, photographing a procedure and showing it without the consent. So let's say that Mrs. Jones is having a gallbladder, gallbladder surgery. And you, we all know what gallbladder surgery is now, right? It's a Band-Aid surgery, two little incisions. Used to be they cut you from here to here. Now it's two little incisions, two little band-aid incisions. They put a little scope in and they go in and they excise that way. Well, if you photograph that procedure without getting the patient's consent and then you use that, that procedure to teach or something like that, the patient really can sue you for that. That patient can sue you for you using, even though it's a gallbladder, I mean, whose is it? Hard to tell, but it's her gallbladder that she used, <laughs> okay? <laughs> May not have shown her face, but it's her gallbladder, daggummit. So you cannot, you can't do that. You have to get, if you're going to use photographic procedure, you must get the patient's consent. You cannot talk about the patient's private life publicly. Okay, say, let's just say, and this is a very good instance, let's just say that you have a patient who's coming in, who's come in, and she is the victim of domestic violence, and we all know what that is, right? Let's just say that her husband just beat her within an inch of her life. He's rearranged her face. Her left eye is over here now. Uh, yeah, and you know, the nose is... So let's just say he's done that, okay? He's rearranged her face completely. Well, you know, and she's told you, finally she's told you that it was her husband and that she's had this big fight and they've had years of, of, of problems. 
and it started with psychological abuse and then it's moved to now physical abuse. Now she's confided in you all of this stuff. Let's just say that you talk about that publicly to somebody else. That's a huge no-no. A huge no-no. You cannot, you can you cannot be standing like in the elevator or in the cafeteria and talking about Mrs. Jones. Now, can you share this information with the coworker in the privacy of the nurse's lobby or in the privacy of report to report? Yes, that's different. That's the information that you have to share in order to what expedite the care of the patient, correct? I mean, because a lot of times patients will come in and they've got these black eyes and things like that, you know, and they've got a little alcohol on their breath. And so what, what happens? We presume that this person was an alcohol, is an alcoholic and fell down the stairs. So, yes, her fault. She was asking for it. Okay, so we presume things. And therefore, we, because we presume things, if we don't know the facts, we may not be treating this particular patient properly. Okay, does that make sense? Excellent. Okay, there are some situations, and I've just got through telling you that you cannot disclose this information, a lot of this information, you can't be telling people. Well, there are some situations where you can and you must. Okay, one of the number one, number one is suspected elder or child abuse. Okay, so if you suspect that this child is being abused, you need to report. Now, I can tell you a story of, of a kid that, in Florida, because I just moved up to Charlotte from Florida. I've been in Florida for, for about 12 years before I moved to Charlotte. There was a case of a two-and-a-half-year-old boy who was brought to the emergency department, and he had a fracture on the top of his head. He had the, the point of impact was the top of his head with a fracture that kind of radiated out from the point of impact. Um, when he was brought in, he was already comatose. He had severe uh, bleeding to the brain. The kid died, ultimately. Well, we did, you know, we did a whole total body x-ray on him, and we found that he had old breaks of the arm, of the ribs, okay, and of the legs. And they were suspicious, very suspicious, because at two and a half years old, you know, that's, it's... You don't have that many injuries. Well, it turns out that the stepfather was trying to potty train this kid. And he had been trying to, he had insisted the child at six months old be started on potty training. Six months? So what he did was he punished the child every time the child pooped in his pants or peed in his pants in the diaper. Well, this, he put the kid in a regular pair of pants and the kid defecated on himself. At two and a half years old, his sphincters are not developed enough. His anal sphincter, neither, neither his anal nor his bladder sphincters are developed enough for him to be able to control them. This is not an appropriate age to potty train him. Certainly not at six months. Well, the father got so upset, he took the, the kid by his heels and plunged his head into the toilet to teach him a lesson kill the kid. Absolutely. Now that in itself was terrible, right? You'd agree. Here's what's worse. Now we have nurses who went, you know, I, was, I thought there was something funny about this. They thought in the 16 other visits that occurred in the last three months, they thought and nobody reported. See the problem I have? I got a big problem here. Huge problem. 
So if you suspect child abuse or suspect elder abuse, you need to report. Better for you to be wrong and the patient be alive than for you to be right and not report and the patient to be dead. Very important. Any criminal activity, now what's criminal activity? Rape is a criminal activity. If a patient comes in, she's been a victim of, he or she has been a victim of sexual assault, whether it's rape or sexual assault, if that person has been a victim of it and, has, and, and discloses to you, you must call the police. Now, regardless of whether she or he wants you to or not, that is a crime. You have to call the police. Whether the victim wants to go on with it and you know, proceed with it, that's between her and the police. But your job is to call the police. Is that pretty clear? Okay. Any use of narcotics. Well, here's a good one. Here comes the guy. A patient comes in, and he's been in a motor vehicle accident. It was a fender bender. Okay, and he comes in because his neck hurts. Okay. Well, his neck hurts and his back hurts. So we tell him, you need to take your clothes off. Actually, it was a her. It's a good example. You need to take your clothes off and put this gown on. Well, in taking her clothes off, and, her, and she, you know, she says, do I have to take my bra off? Yeah. Okay, then she takes her bra off, and in taking her bra off, a crack pipe falls out. Ooh, isn't that special? Well, you know, <laughs> it happens. So this crack pipe falls off, you pick it up. Okay, now you, know you, now you have drug paraphernalia. Do you return it to her? Absolutely not. You do not return it to her. If you find drug paraphernalia or drugs on a person, you do not return it to the patient. You need to get it into the hands of law enforcement. So that means you've got to call the police. Any communicable disease, like if a patient comes in with a cough, night sweats, severe weight loss, do an x-ray and it looks like, and it, you, you know, you know, it looks like he has tuberculosis, that needs to be reported to the health department. Anyone who comes in who's a newly diagnosed HIV patient must be reported, okay? Infectious diseases like sexually transmitted diseases must also be reported to the health department. And the health department will follow up from there, okay? Any questions so far? Okay, let's talk about false imprisonment. False imprisonment is making someone feel wrongfully that he or she cannot leave a place, okay? Let's put it this way. Here's a, um, an 82-year-old woman. You do not have an order for restraints on her. You do not have an order for side reels up on her, okay? And she is not quite with it. She's one of our famous sundowners. Okay, here comes 5 o'clock, and boom, there goes the brain out the door. All right? And she keeps climbing out of bed. She keeps wandering down the hallway, and she keeps really endangering herself. Okay, and this is a true instance. So the nurses decided, well, they're going to keep her in her bed. And, and what they did was, because they didn't have an order for side rails up, what they did was they put one set of side rails up, and then they pushed the bed against the wall. Well, is that false imprisonment? Absolutely, because what's the intent? The intent is to prevent her from getting out of bed, right? The intent was there. So even though you don't have four side reels up, so technically they didn't have all the side reels up, 
But the intent was, even though they had only you know, side wheels up on one side, the intent was to stop her from getting out of bed. So that is false imprisonment. And you can, you can imprison someone physically with restraints or chemically with drugs. Now, what happens if you have to physically or chemically restrain someone? You have to get a doctor's order, correct? You've got to document, document, document very, very, very carefully what you see. It's also very important that you follow up. Okay, my girlfriend's mother uh, just died in Charlotte, North Carolina. She was, she was in a nursing home, and she was missing from the nursing home. She has a history of wandering, okay? And um, they took her to a picnic, and nobody really watched her, and they found her um, the next day. And now the temperatures in August in Charlotte, North Carolina, were hitting like 98, 90s, you know, the high 90s. No rain, very humid worse than Florida could ever be. They found her the next day sitting in an abandoned car. She was dead. Now, does she have a case? You bet. Big one. Okay. So, she has a history of wandering, but nobody who took care of her ever documented. They documented she has a history of wandering, but no one ever documented what they did as a preventive measure. So, in other words, patient wanders, your job is what? Orienter. You have to keep orienting the patient. And you've got to document that you've oriented the patient. And you've got to document every single step that you took. An example, if this patient falls down the first time, get old man, right? Stands up, falls down, all right? He's unstable on his feet. That's that, right? He's unstable on his feet. So what do you do? Mr. Anderson, please, you want to tell him, Mr. Anderson, please don't get up without help. Document that, that you instructed him not to get up without help. Well, Mr. Anderson gets up again without help, and boom, there he goes. He falls again. Okay, so what do you do now? You again document the next step that you took. You put Mr. Anderson in a chair. You call the doctor, you know, you document everything. The doctor gives you an order for a jerry chair. With, you see, every single step of the way, and it must be progressive. In other words, you can't go from nothing to everything. You cannot go from nothing to full restraints, four-point restraints in the vest. You have to document carefully every step of the way, every step that you took. That will keep you out of the court system. Any verbal threat of physical or emotional harm without legal justifications. And you all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the patient who says, I do not want that medicine. Do not give me that shot. Okay, and you go ahead and give it anyway. That's not good. Or you say to him, if you don't let me give you this shot, I will. Smack you silly. Right? For a month of Sundays. See, that's a verbal threat of physical harm. Now, some little old men and little old ladies who live, who live in nursing homes will believe you. And they'll become extremely terrified. Remember, they're little old men, little old ladies. So, I covered that. All right, let's talk about defamation of character. This is something that you all, as nurses, have heard many times. Yes? I hate working with Nurse Susie Q because she is such a bitch. Right? 
Not only that, she's a terrible nurse. And this is broadcast to anyone and everyone who will listen and will sit still long enough. Am I right? Doesn't this happen? Sure. Sure. Now you may, now first of all, Susie Q may very well be a terrible nurse. But it's, n it's not your judgment call, buddy. <laughs> Unless you can document for sure. All right? In your opinion, she may be a lousy nurse because why? Because maybe she's doing something that not the same way that you're doing it. Doesn't make her a lousy nurse. Makes her a different nurse. <laughs> but doesn't make her a lousy nurse. So it's not your judgment call. Unless, for example, here's, here's a good one. The order calls for 0.125 of dig to be given and she gives 1.25. Okay? You know what I mean? Unless you can absolutely show and prove. And even then, it's not up to you to broadcast to the whole nation. Stand on the rooftops and say, hey, anybody want to hear? Okay, it's not up to you to do that. Okay, it's up to you to document appropriately and accurately exactly what she did and what happened, but it's not up to you to make the judgment call. A defamation of character is a tort, and it can be slanderous or spoken or written. So if I said, Susie Q is a lousy nurse, she can sue me. Okay, if I wrote down in my nursing notes or somewhere on the walls, Okay, <laughs> went to the bathroom, wrote on the wall, Susie is a terrible nurse. <laughs> okay, I mean, if I did that, then it becomes libelous. Now, some examples of libel, I think they're, like, for example, Susie's a terrible nurse. The patient is lying. Now, don't do that. I mean, you know she's lying. You know the patient may be lying, but don't write down your judgment call that the patient is lying. What you can do, though, is say, here's an example. Um, you can say, uh, patient says her dress is green. Her dress is red. Now, it can mean one of two things. One, she's lying, or two, she's totally colorblind. But if you just said she was lying, that's a judgment call. She may be colorblind. Yes? Sure. Uh-huh. Patient says, coffee's too hot. Coffee is warm. To you, it's warm. To her, it may be hot. So don't put your judgment call down, okay? That's the most important. Um, giving out inappropriate or inaccurate information. Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. This is, this is a good one. Here you go, family calls on the telephone, all right? And Nurse Ratchet, who's your head nurse, gets on the phone and says, Oh, yes, and Mr. Smith in room three, th and she proceeds to spill her guts about that patient. Have you, heard, have you worked with nurses like that? Give all the information on the telephone? Yeah. And not only that, I had this incident happen, okay? Charge nurse did this, gave all the information on the telephone to the family. Guess what? Wrong patient. <laughs> Is that a problem? Big problem. Big, big, big problem. That is an example of libel. Talking in the elevator, we talked about speaking negatively. All right. What happens, by the way, if indeed, if indeed a patient's family does call you and say, can you give me information on my uncle? What is your answer? Really can't do it. Cannot do it. It's against the law. I cannot give you information, but he's my uncle. I have no idea who this other person is on the other end of the phone. She could be the Queen of England for all I care. You know, I don't care. 
She's not getting one bit of information from me. Okay, I had a patient call me from Mexico once because we had a patient from Mexico City in the ER. Long distance, overseas call from Mexico. It's my uncle. I'm calling from Mexico. You can call from the moon, you ain't getting it. Okay, bottom line, don't give the information. Doesn't matter. Protect yourself, don't do it. And you explain very nicely, I'm sorry, I cannot, it is against the law, I could lose my license. But, it, and you always get this, but it's my, can't you make an exception? No, I really can't. <laughs> okay, you cannot give information over the phone. You cannot give information to just hold that question till afterwards, okay? You cannot give information to anyone over the phone. Now, you can make arrangements that sometimes, you know, the, if the, with the wife, you've met the wife, or you've met that person to whom you know you can give information, right? And you make arrangements that the wife can call in for some. Honestly, though, I'm going to tell you something. NCLEX will tell you, bottom line, no. In real life, you might want to tweak it, but the bottom line is the law says you may not divulge information over the telephone. That's the law. Okay? That is the absolute law. Now, here's the other one. You've got nephew and niece, and then you've got first cousin, uncle, mother, brother, okay, and uh, girlfriend and wife. And they're all calling you for information. Hasn't that happened? The entire family, I mean, you hang up the phone and you want to go take care of your patient, here's another call, right? And they're on the phone and then you hang it up and you spend your time on the phone with the family instead of being at the bedside. What do you do? You need to tell the family, designate one spokesman. And I always explain to them very nicely, I always explain to them, you know, you are now my eighth call in the last 30 minutes, which means that in the last 30 minutes, I have not been at the bedside of your loved one who is critical. So we have two choices here. I can stay on the phone and talk to every single member of the family and let your loved one be unattended, or you can get one spokesperson, right? and you'll deal with that one spokesperson. And he can disseminate the information. I mean, you tell them politely, but tell them nicely and tell them factually. And I'll tell you, I will say this to you, in the 19 years that I've been working in the emergency department, I have never ever had anyone say to me, no, we can't do that. When you present it to them that way, you, got, you know, you're only one person. You can be either at the bedside or on the phone. Which one do you want? Okay. All right. Let's talk about unintentional torts, again, that negligence and malpractice are two of them. Now, in order for negligence or malpractice to be established or defined, what we have to understand is that every professional organization, whether it be doctors or attorneys or nurses, has a code of ethics or a standard of care that's established. Now, the standard of care is determined by a professional organization. In our case, in the nurse's case, it's established by the American Nurses Association. So negligence is failure to act as a reasonably prudent person would. And what does that essentially tell you? 
it tells you that you need to practice good nursing care because it's standard across the nation. In other words, if it is standard in California that when someone comes in and complains of chest pain, okay, you, you immediately put him on a cardiac monitor, put him on oxygen, put IV in, in him, give him a nitro, right? If there's a standard of care in California, that standard of care exists in Alaska, it exists in Florida, the same standard of care in Florida, in Arizona, in New York, in Denver, Colorado. It exists across the board. So if you did not act according to the standard of care, then you are not acting as a reasonably prudent person would. Let me give you another one. If it is a standard of care in Montana, for when a person who comes out of abdominal surgery that the nurse auscultates all four quadrants of the bowels to auscultate for bowel sounds and must listen for at least 30 seconds, sometimes even up to five minutes, okay? If the nurse, if it is the standard of care in Montana that postoperatively you auscultate for bowel sounds in all four quadrants, then that same standard of care applies in New Mexico, in Texas, in Arizona, in California, in New York, in New Jersey, you understand? Across the nation. So if you don't, then you are not acting as a reasonably prudent person would, and you are now negligent. And one of the other things that I do in my life is that I'm also a, an expert witness. And one of the cases that I had was indeed this. This woman came out, she'd had a barium enema. Okay, and after the barium enema, one of the things that we do is we, we, we do what? We auscultate for bowel sounds and we document the stool, correct? Nowhere in that chart, nowhere in that chart was there ever a documentation that bowel sounds were listened for, and nowhere in that chart was there anything that mentioned the color of the stool or that a stool even passed. This woman had ulcerative colitis. They didn't even prep her properly for the, uh, for the barium enema because nowhere was there written that she was prepped. Multitude of errors. So you know what happened? You've got to prep them properly, right? You've got to give them laxatives before, then you give them enemas to clean out the bowel, right? Because you're going for barium enema. You want to see what's wrong with the intestines, with the, the, the lower bowels. That wasn't done after the, after the procedure. Nobody documented a single bowel sound. Nobody documented a single stool. This woman perforated her intestine and died. Yep. So was that negligence? Absolutely. Absolutely. Nurse was negligent? Absolutely. Okay, so negligence is failure to act as a reasonably prudent person. would. Malpractice is the behavior by a professional that fails to meet standard of care. Now, a doctor can be sued for malpractice, so can a nurse. A CNA can be sued for negligence, but not malpractice. So when your CNAs tell you, I don't care, I don't get sued, your answer is, oh, yes, you can. In point of fact, when a lawsuit occurs, what happens? The, the attorney comes in and names everybody, right? From the janitor all the way up to the CEO. As a janitor's fault, he didn't wash the floor properly. I mean, am I right? They will hit everyone, everyone. So malpractice is behavior by a professional that fails to meet the standard of care. It can be intentional or unintentional. 
Now, I'll, I'll give you an example in a second. It results in harm to another person. And so now, what is the difference between malpractice and negligence? Negligence, as I said, applies to a lay person, so a CNA can get sued for that. And malpractice refers to a professional. Now that I've gone through all the bad scenario and told you that, oh my gosh, you can get sued for this, you can, sued for look, get, you can get sued for looking at somebody cross-eyed, okay, looking at somebody wrong, you're all ready to hang up your licenses, right, and go home? No. Okay, why? Here's our saving grace. The person who, fail, who files a lawsuit must prove four essential elements. That person must prove that you, as a professional or as the caregiver, had a duty to the patient. Okay? You breached that duty. And when you breached that duty, harm or damages occurred, and it was because you breached your duty that this harm or damages occurred. They have to link all four. Okay? If there is one part missing, guess what? It will not go forward. It will not e the judge won't even look at it. Will not go to court. Will not go to trial. You must prove four elements. You had a duty. You breached it. Harm occurred. And it, the harm occurred because you breached your duty. I'll give you an example when we get to the DNA part. Okay. Some common causes of nursing lawsuits. Well, failure to administer an injection properly. Failure to ensure safety of elderly or medicated, sedated, confused, or dizzy patients. Okay, here you go. Failure to administer an injection properly. The doctor's order reads 25 milligrams of Demerol IM. Okay? And you utilize, you drop 25 milligrams of Demerol, not a problem, and you utilize a 5 eighth inch needle to administer it. Guess what you just did? You gave it sub-Q, so you failed to administer it properly. I had a patient one time um, where the nurse gave Phenergan, 25 milligrams of Phenergan, with a 5 eighth needle. Well, that went in sub-Q, and Phenergan sub-Q can cause tremendous and huge lipodystrophy, and that is exactly what happened to this patient. So she could say all she wants, she administered IM. She didn't, it did not go in IM because it was right there in the sub-Q. She used the 5 8 inch needle. So you have to choose your tools properly too. Failure to, order to follow prescribed orders or established protocols, well, that also is included in the failure to administer an injection properly. Failure to assess or observe. And we covered this already. Remember I gave you the instance of the old man who keeps falling? Yes, the same thing. Now, failure to assess a wound properly. Here's a good one. Those of you who work in nursing homes and all these wonderful little old men and little old ladies with decubitus ulcers, every time, and I mean every time, every single time you look at a wound, you do wound care, what do you have to do? You've got to document exactly how you did it. In other words, you use clean gloves to remove the old dressing and then sterile gloves to administer, to apply the dressing or do the wound care. You must document exactly. If it isn't documented, you didn't do it that way. Okay. The other thing that you've got to document also is the color of the drainage, the smell. Yes, 
the look, what did the wound look like? You must document all these things. If you don't, and measurement, you got to measure how wide, how, you know, the, the length times breadth and how deep as well. Is there any tunneling underneath that decubitus ulcer? And that's something you, we forget. We absolutely forget. I had a patient one time, and they said, oh, her wound is healing wonderfully. She had a big abdominal wound. Now it's just about the size of, you know, very, you can just barely get a Q-tip in. I said, oh, very good. That sounds like a wonderful thing. Well, my first time with a patient, I had to assess her. I went with a Q-tip, you know, one of those long Q-tips? I went with a sterile Q-tip. I went in, and guess what? I put the whole Q-tip and tunneled all the way around. This wound was healing real well, wasn't it? Okay. You also have to describe how you packed the wound and how much you used to pack the wound. So if you used, if you used three four-by-fours, if you removed three, you better put in three. Okay, and pack it well. You cannot go from three to one overnight. It doesn't happen. So if you remove three, you put in three. And you document very carefully exactly how you did it. And, all right, another big, big, big cause of lawsuits against nurses is failure to follow the five rights of medication administration. And I covered this briefly with you also. Right, right root, okay, if you use a five-eighth inch needle in order to give A, I am, you just failed right there. You flunked. Okay, another one is, another good example is um, this little baby out in, in um, Colorado who died because uh, the baby was given, you know, little babies get, who have cardiac problems, they get DIG, okay, they get DIG. The nurse gave the PO DIG IV, yeah, baby died. Well, here's the saddest part of it. The saddest part of it is the neonatal nurse practitioner. The nurse wasn't sure, so she went to the neonatal nurse practitioner and said, how do I give this? Do I give this IV or do I give it by mouth? The, nurse, the neonatal nurse practitioner wasn't sure, so they called down to the pharmacy. And the pharmacy wasn't sure. Yeah, exactly. So guess what happened? They figured, and the pharmacy actually said, well, I don't think it matters, so they gave it, gave it, yeah, IV, and the baby died. So, failure to monitor the IV site and failure to, and the enteral lines, how frequently should you monitor the IV site? At least once a shift. You need to monitor it, you need to document that you monitored it, and you need to document what it looked like. Any signs, any signs or symptoms of? Inflammation, infection, infiltration, you need to document. And you need to, you've got to monitor at least once a shift. Okay. All right, some legal facts of nursing practice. Well, you know that for certain procedures, you must get an informed consent signed, right, from the patient. Well, before that patient can sign the informed consent, doesn't that patient have to be competent? In other words, please don't ask someone with, whose IQ is two points higher than a rock to sign for, <laughs> right? He's not competent, folks. So competence is not, is a, is a big deal. Competence is a very big deal. 
Informed consent simply means what? That the patient accepts the procedure and it says, yes, yes, I'm going to have this procedure done. Um, the risks and the alternative treatments must be explained to him by the doctor, not by the nurse. The nurse only witnesses the giving of the informed consent and only witnesses that that signature at the bottom it belongs to the patient. You have no idea how many doctors I know who call down to the ER and say, just get him to sign a consent for the operation. No. <laughs> the answer is no. No. Why? Because you're not doing the operation. Okay? And I told a surgeon once, because he asked me if I would do it, and I said, yeah, you want to pay me the big bucks? I'll take your salary for a year, not a problem. You know? Whatever you're charging for this surgery, give it to me. I'll take it. He says, what are you talking about? And he says, I can't do it. Every other nurse in this hospital does. Well, isn't that interesting? Don't do it. Knock wood, I have never been sued. I've been in court, but not as a defendant, only as a witness. Again, knock wood. Okay. One of the reasons is because I'm severely anal retentive. And I really want to follow the laws. It's very important. Be, be severely AR. It is, it's okay. It really is okay. Makes you a better nurse. Okay, so informed consent. The patient must be competent. The risks and the alternative treatments must be explained by the physician. And the nurse only witnesses the giving of this consent. And there are three major elements to informed consent. It must be given voluntarily. In other words, I cannot go up to Jesse with a gun and say, sign this thing. Put it to a head and say, okay, sign it. Okay, that's no longer voluntary. Right? I coerced her now. So it must be given voluntarily. It must be given by the patient with the capacity to understand. So again, if Jesse's IQ was two points high on a rock, that's no reason for forget it. Okay, so she could not sign her own informed consent. You'd have to therefore get somebody who can sign. Okay, and the patient must be given enough information to be the decision maker. In other words, you cannot just say to the patient, here, sign this, it's for surgery. No, he must understand the risks, he must understand the alternatives. Okay, so everything must be explained to him. I had a patient one time who was going in for cardiac surgery. Okay, so I went in, the consent was signed. The consent was signed. I went to do some pre-op teaching for him, to him. So I'm doing this little pre-op teaching and I say, I see that you signed for, you know, for, for your surgery. He said, yeah, and I understand. He says, it's a real simple procedure today. You just go in with a laser. I'm thinking cardiac surgery with a laser, he's going to, no, he's going to cut him from, he from here to here. What the heck is he talking about? The doctor was, a, and, it, and then it wasn't the cardiac doctor gone, it was the GI doctor gone and explained to him about a gallbladder surgery. Wrong patient. Yeah. Wrong patient. So I was thinking to myself, well, gee, I wonder who the GI patient was, thought he was having a gallbladder removed. Now he's going to be, oh my gosh. Okay. So the patient who thought he was going to have a gallbladder, cholecystectomy, got the information for cardiac surgery, and yeah, I'm flipped. So. Anyway, good thing we figured that out, right? Okay, so who can give informed consent? This is important because as an, and, and there are a lot of questions in NCLEX about this, and that's why I'm spending so much time on the law and the nurse and the law. 
who can give informed consent? You have to be 18 years of age. You have to be conscious. Conscious is good. Yes. <laughs> conscious is very good. And oriented. And you have, if, if the person's under 18, then that person must be self-supporting or married. In other words, an emancipated minor. Okay, who cannot provide consent? A minor. So I'm always asked, what if I have the five-year-old and you have to give the five-year-old a shot? And the five-year-old goes, no, 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 give me the shot. No, 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 no. What do you do? Say, okay, fine, I won't. No. <laughs> no, as a five-year-old. Now it's your job, it's your challenge to go to the five-year-old and explain and say, yes, it will hurt, but it will be quick, it will be over with. Okay? So a minor cannot give consent. Mentally retarded individuals cannot give consent. I had a 39-year-old patient come in who was the victim of a sexual assault, and his mother gave me permission to perform the exam. Yes, because he couldn't. He's mentally retarded. Um, unconscious patients obviously cannot provide consent. Neither can they sign. <laughs> kind of hard for them to do. Mentally ill people. Anyone who's been sedated cannot either. So here's the deal. You've got a patient who's going to the OR. You know, you have the orders that say these meds on call to the OR, right? And one of the famous ones is Demerol with atropine or Demerol with Phenergan on call to the OR. So you come on at 7 o'clock, and here you go. You get the call right away from the OR, and the OR says, okay, go ahead and give the patient the medications. And you go in, and you give that patient his Demerol and his Phenergan, all right? And you come back out, and you flip through the chart, and you go, there's no consent. Well, guess what? Can't get one now. <laughs> you just gave him Demerol Fenegan. Cannot get one now. So what is my statement then? Check the chart first before you go in. Make sure the consent is signed first before you go in to give him the Demerol Fenegan, give him any kind of sedative me uh, medications. If he's confused or disoriented, he also cannot provide consent. Implied consent obviously occurs in emergent situations. I mean, I just went through telling you, okay, you've got to give consent. Well, if a person comes in is the, is the, um, was involved in you know, an accident, he was riding a bicycle and it was bicycle versus dump truck, I guess he lost. So if he comes in and he's completely unconscious, what do I go, oops, sorry, can't sign. You didn't sign a consent? Man, I'm sorry, can't take care of you. Darn. No, of course not. This is a life-threatening or emergency situation. We got to take care of him right away. Okay, and we can also do that for minors. A minor comes in, we had a 14-year-old come in once, um, she was in an accident. She was in a car, not seat belted, with a 16-year-old driver. 16-year-old driver was going at 75 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. Oh, please, do not get me started. 16-year-old ran a stop sign. And you talk about Honda Civic versus dump truck. Yes. Splat. Anyway, so this 14-year-old comes in. No seatbelt, 14-year-old was thrown from the car. I mean, imagine, thrown from the car. This is not a Honda sports car, okay? So you say thrown from the car, had to go through some kind of hard glass or door or something, you know? So we had to take care of that one. We did right away, obviously. Informed refusal. Now, he's given you consent to take care of him. He's given consent to have the procedure done and he changes his mind, okay? Can, 
do you have to comply? Absolutely. If he changes his mind at any point in time, before, at the initiation of the treatment or during the treatment, and he insists that he does not want it done, then you stop. It's not like you're having a sigmoidoscopy and you know that's uncomfortable and you go, oh, 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 stop, 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 that really hurts. Okay, it's a little different. I mean, if that happens, what do you do? You stop advancing and you just kind of wait. It's like giving a soap suds enema. All right, and you insert the tip and you start to let the water flow and they start screaming. Stop, 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 that hurts. Well, you don't stop, in other words, you don't pull it out, but you slow down the flow. You stop the flow, let the cramps go away. Okay, and you say, I understand, that we'll, we'll work on this slowly. But if he absolutely insists, he does not want it done, then you need to stop. Because otherwise it's assault and battery. An informed refusal is valid even after informed consent has been given and that patient must have decision-making capacity. So, in other words, if you have a procedure done, he's going for sigmoidoscopy and you gave him 25 milligrams of Valium IV, okay, and he says stop, well, you know what? He doesn't have decision-making capacity now. Got drugs on board. Follow? Okay. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> I know, scenarios kind of, and, and, the refusal must be voluntary. And obviously the people who can give informed consent are the same people who can give informed refusal. So a minor or a mentally retarded person cannot. Um, yes. And a sedated person cannot. Okay, what about DNRs and living wills? Again, important because NCLEX asked these questions. Okay. DNRs and living wills are wonderful tools because they basically are mechanisms for consent or the refusal of a treatment when the patient lacks decision-making capacity. Now, a DNR is signed by the physician. Okay, a living will is signed by the patient. All right? DNR is initiated by the physician, and a living will is initiated by the, by the patient. And the patient can write that living will or a power of attorney or any one of those things, years before he gets sick. So in other words, he basically writes it when he's nice and healthy. And what he does is that he, you know, healthcare, power of, uh, healthcare surrogate or a power of attorney, he writes down exactly what he wants done. I have a living will, and essentially what it does is it tells my family that if I get hit by a truck and my brain is squashed, do not put me on a ventilator. Do not try to save my life and have me prolong my agony because if they do, I will come back and haunt them. Okay, so it's very simple. <laughs> How clear was that? <laughs> so with a durable power of attorney or an advanced directive or a living will or healthcare surrogate or any one of those things, essentially what's happening is that the patient is writing down in this document what he wants done. Like I said, don't put me on a respirator. Okay, if it comes to the point where... You, uh, I, they, they can do CPR on me, but they cannot intubate me. They can give me external drugs. They can give me lidocaine, but they better not intubate me. I mean, I'm really big, big on this in, no intubation thing. So you want to give me lidocaine? Not a problem. External shock? Not a problem. I stipulate exactly what they can do and what they cannot do. Okay, so those are the sorts of things that happens. It's preferable, these durable power of attorneys and advanced directives and healthcare surrogates and stuff like that are really preferable to living will because they have such broader, broader applications. Okay, it must be witnessed by two people and 
they have to be kept in, you, you have to see the original. As a nurse, you've got to see the original. In other words, you cannot take the word of someone that there's one somewhere, and you cannot see a copy. You can see a copy for temporary. In other words, the patient comes to the hospital, and they go, oh, you know, I don't, I don't have the original with me. I have it at home. I'll run home and fax you a copy, and then I'll drive in with the original copy. That's good. But you cannot function just on the faxed copy alone. You must ultimately see the original. Okay. All right, let's talk about organ donation. Let's just say, and I am an organ donor. Yes, I am. And if those of you who are not organ donors, please seriously think about it. It can be made by a provision in the will. It can be on your driver's license, right? You all know when you get your driver's license, they ask you, do you want to be an organ donor? It can be on that too. Now, let's just say, it has to be witnessed by two people, but let's just say I am an organ donor. And let's just say, yes, I did have an accident and, and I am now uh, called brain dead. I had an accident, my brain got smushed, you know, and so I'm now brain dead. I have been accused of being brain dead even though I'm walking around, but that's okay. And we all know some people who are like that too. Some mornings I am severely brain dead, yes. You must have two witnesses and the nurses can serve as a witness. And you must, here's the deal though. I'm an organ donor. I'm now brain dead, okay? I, it's in my will. It's on my driver's license that I am an organ donor. Can the organ procurement agency just come and start harvesting my organs? No. Even though I've stipulated that, yes, I want to be an organ donor, they still must get permission from the next of kin. Now, let's just say that my husband goes, uh-uh. Nope, you're not taking her organs. Can they take the organs? Nope, they cannot. Absolutely cannot take the organs. So you must have permission from the next of kin. Now, who are your next of kin? You know, all right, you all know you've got the great aunt Tilly, you've got the cousin, right? The wife, the, the girlfriend, the other girlfriend, the mistress. And Yes, we know these situations, and you know that's exactly what I'm talking about. You've got all those people, and they all want to give their two cents about how to treat the patient, how to take care, and they, they, I'm the next of kin, you're going to give me all the information. You are the fifth cousin eight times removed. How can you be the next of kin? But you got that. You got those wonderful people. So in order of priority, thank goodness the law has set out for us, in order of priority, the legal next of kin list. So number one is the spouse. Then the adult son or daughter, and usually the oldest son or oldest daughter. Then the mother. Okay, then the adult brother or sister. And then the very bottom is the legal guardian. Okay? Obviously, if the person has a legal guardian, that person has nobody else in, the, in his, his or her life. So that is your order of priority. Any questions? Good. If you have questions, write them down, right? <laughs> okay. The instant report. Okay. We don't like instant reports, do we? We hate instant reports. Because an instant report means what? It means that oops happened. I hate that when that happens. You know the oopsies? Ugh, can't stand them. Okay, let's say that you come around the corner, okay, and then, uh-oh, here's Miss Matilda, and she's on the floor. Do you have to write an instant report? Absolutely, but what do you write? Miss Matilda fell? No, Miss Matilda observed on the floor. 
That's how you do it. Sitting position, lying position, whatever. Okay, but you do not make that assumption that she fell. You don't know. She could have just decided to sit. You don't know. So you make that documentation that she was observed on the floor in whatever position that you saw her in. Obviously, if you witnessed her falling, then yeah, you write down that she fell. And you write the circumstances around it. Again, your instant report must be brief, to the point, and only covers exactly what you saw. Make no assumptions. Don't blame someone. Don't say, you know, it's Jessie's fault that Miss Matilda fell because she made a face at her. Okay, no, don't do that. Avoid blame, avoid pointing fingers. Okay, so for any instant report, an instant report is written for any mishap, any oops that occurs in the hospital or the institution where you work. The instant report is not a part, not a part of the person's medical record. You do not write in your nursing notes that you filed an instant report. In some places, it's called a quality assurance report, a QAR. Okay, you do not write that down. You must complete it within 24 hours, and if there are any witnesses, you write down the name of the witnesses, right? The name and addresses of the witnesses. And remember, finally, finally, if you remember nothing else about instant reports, you never, never, never chart in the medical record, in your nursing notes, that an instant report was filed. Okay, we're going to move to the one more scenario, one more slide actually, and then we'll take a break. Okay, let's talk about delegation and supervision. Now, we've got a lot of delegation questions coming up in NCLEX. For those of you who may have taken the NCLEX before, am I right? Lots of delegation questions. They want, here's an example, you know, you have, you are the charge nurse, you've got an RN, you've got an LPN, you've got a CNA, which of the following patients do you assign to which? Yes? Lots of delegation and supervision questions. So the ultimate thing is that you need to remember who you can delegate to. Okay? So you need to, rem if you, you got to know your Nurse Practice Act. So if you have an RN, then you can only designate RN chores to an RN. You cannot designate RN chores to an LPN. And you cannot designate LPN chores to a CNA. You can designate CNA chores to an LPN and RN. That's safe, yeah. You can designate, you can, I'm not designate, but you can, you can delegate LPN chores to an RN. You can go up the ladder, but not down the ladder. Okay? That's safe practice. Now, so you've got to know that person's scope of, of practice. Let me give you a good example. In every hospital now, we deal with the problem of short staff, right? You get pulled from one floor to another, right? Or worse, you, you are happily working on this floor, and all of a sudden you're working on a med search floor, and all of a sudden they tell you, well, we just, we're sending you another nurse. You're short-staffed. And they say, you're sending you another nurse. And you go, oh, thank goodness there is a God. And guess where this nurse comes from? Labor and delivery. Okay. All right, well, that's very good. We don't have any babies being born right now, but this is another pair of hands. Isn't this wonderful? Sure, it's wonderful. So, now, who do you, now you go, well, okay, I've lit, she's an RN. I mean, they really build, build you up. We're giving you another nurse, and she's an RN. But they don't tell you some labor and delivery. Okay, well, she's here. Here's the thing. She's a labor and delivery nurse. So her expertise is in birthing babies. 
Okay, that's her expertise. She really doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about COPD. Okay, and she really doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about maybe cancer or um, congestive heart failure or cardiac surgery. So what you've got to do is remember that when you're delegating patients to her. There are some things that all nurses know. We all know how to give meds, right? We all know how to give IM medications. We all know how to start IVs. The basic things that we know. We all know how to hang blood. I don't care where you work. Whether you work in pediatrics, whether you work in labor and delivery, in the ICU, in the ER, on med search flow, we all know how to hang blood, don't we? It's very easy, right? Same, we use the same equipment regardless of where we are. We know we have to check the vital signs before starting. We know we have to double check it with somebody else. We know we have to take vital signs 15 minutes after. Don't care. Doesn't matter what your expertise is. There are certain basic things with nursing that we all know. So those are the sorts of things you keep in mind. Because there is an NCLEX question floating out there that says, you got this patient from labor and delivery. Okay, which of the following patients should you assign to her? And you've got a patient that, you know, has uh, tuberculosis, and you've got a patient that has congestive heart failure, and you've got another patient who has cancer, and then you, the, your fourth patient is that he needs two units of packed cells. That's the one. That's the one. She knows how to do that, trust me. If she doesn't, she's fired. No. <laughs> but that's a basic nursing skill. Okay, so say I'm a nurse the charge nurse, and I got this labor and delivery patient, uh, nurse that came in, and I assigned to her um, the patient that's get, supposed to get two units of pack cells. Okay, now, now that I've assigned it to her, do I just relinquish responsibility now? Absolutely not. I still, it's still my job to make sure that it was done. So just because I gave it to you doesn't necessarily mean I have now relinquished responsibility. Okay. I, I, you're accountable for it, but I am accountable and responsible for it. I still have to make sure that it was done. So if I come up to you and say, well, how's it going, you know, with that patient with the blood, it's not because I'm trying to be a pain in the tail. It's because I really need to know. <laughs> and, so, you know, some nurses will do that. They will think, why, do you, why are you checking up on me? You know, you, you don't trust me? It has nothing to do with trust, folks. It has everything to do with the fact that you're the charge nurse and you're still responsible and you're still accountable. Because if anything goes wrong, it's your butt that hangs in the breeze. Okay? So as an RN, if you've got an LPN on your team and a CNA on your team, you're responsible for everything that they do. If you're the LPN you're, and the LPN is the senior person in charge, there's no RN on, in other words, if the LPNs, the senior person in charge, licensed person in charge, that LPN is responsible for everything the CNAs do. So if you're an LPN and you're in charge of the CNAs, I hope that you will, if you haven't been doing it, I hope that you will follow up, okay? They can call you any name they want under the sun. It's okay. They, they, can, they can call you bitch, just make sure it's Ms. Bitch. So just, you know, yeah, it's okay. Because you know what? It's still your license, isn't it? Absolutely. So just make sure of that. All right. Um, make sure that when you give a task, though, that you tell, you communicate what the task is clearly. In other words, don't just say, oh, go take care of Mr. Johnson in room 324. He has wound care. 
Okay, what kind of wound care? Be clear. Is it a sterile? Is it, an, is it clean? What is it? Be clear. Because remember, it's your butt that's out there. And it's, this is my favorite part of my anatomy. I don't know about yours. But, you know, it's your butt, so you want to make sure that you explain it very, very clearly. Okay? Because if they don't do it right, it's still you. I mean, I actually had a CNA one time where I, I it was in the ER, I drew the blood. Okay, I drew the blood. This is a cardiac patient that came in. I put the IV in, drew the blood, did everything, came out, also got a urine sample. So here I got the urine sample and I got the blood. Okay, so here I am. And then I get called to a code. So I got urine sample, I got blood. So I said to her, please send the urine sample in this bag. Urine sample was in a biohazard bag. Please send the urine sample and please send the blood on Mr. So-and-so in bed 35, okay? Went in, took care of the code, came back out, urine still sitting there, blood still sitting there. Okay. Do we have a problem, Houston? Yeah, we had a problem. So now, don't know why she didn't send it, but it was my job now as the person who, she, who was in charge of her to find out why. I wanted to kill her, but it's okay, I didn't. Um, to find out why, and then to troubleshoot and say, and find out what, no, to make sure that from this point on, the same problem doesn't occur again. Yes, she will never work for me anymore. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. What are some of the, of the activities that um, a UAP or CNA can do? Well, they can do non-invasive procedures. EKGs are all right. Ambulation, ADLs, vital signs, eyes and nose, basic um, AccuCheck readings, okay? Uh, clean dressings are good. They can do vena puncture in terms of drawing blood. Now, in some states, a CNA can also put an, um, an IV if they've gone through specialized training. But that is not something that is across the board. So NCLEX cannot ask you a question that only applies to certain states because NCLEX is uniform. So NCLEX can only ask you questions that are uniform across the, you know, every single, the 50 states of, the, uh, uh, of America. All right? So venipuncture, drawing blood, yes, they can do this. Putting an IV line only applies to certain states so that they won't, they won't ask you on, the, on those questions, okay? Remember that your CNAs, or your unlicensed assistive personnel, UAP, report to the RN or the LPN. And remember, if you are the RN or the LPN, it is your responsibility to follow up and make absolutely sure, absolutely sure, that whatever you delegated or assigned is completed. Okay. An unlicensed personnel or CNA cannot make a nursing diagnosis. She cannot assess, evaluate, or problem solve, though I do have to tell you that if you have a CNA, and I had one when I first graduated from nursing school a thousand years ago, I did not have a preceptor. I did not have an orientation. What I did have was, here's an LPN, here's a CNA, go for it. Okay, those were the two people who trained me. Fortunately, Loretta, who was the CNA, was the, the, the LPN, had been a CNA for 50 years. Okay, and... Um, Edith, who was the CNA, had been a CNA. I think she was born a CNA. Okay. 
I believe she came out of a mother's womb with a little cap on, on her head. But anyway, Edith, between Edith and Loretta, I got the best training because both Edith and Loretta had been in nursing for so many, between the two of them, they had over 100 years worth of nursing. Please move to the next section of the lecture series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.